Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bhumika, the host for today, and today we're going to talk to Dr. Siddharthan Monaguru about his new book, Marrying for a Future, Transnational Sri Lankan Tamil Marriages in the Shadow of War, which was published this year by the University of Washington Press in their Global South Asia series. Uh, Dr. Siddhartha Monaguru is an assistant professor of the South Asian Studies Program at the National University of Singapore. Thank you so much for joining us today, Siddhartha. We're so, so happy and lucky and glad to have you. Thank you, Bumika. Thank you so much for inviting me to be part of uh, New Books Network. And I am very happy and glad to be here. And it's a great pleasure to be here and to be uh, to, to have this conversation uh, on, on my book. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much. So let me begin right away by um, requesting you to tell us a little about your arrival to anthropology, your journey to anthropology, and sort of it's, you know, your pursuit of anthropology now um, as a matter of scholarly interest, as a matter of career. So if you could tell our listeners, I'm sure I'm very keen to know about the way not just this book came about, but how you came about anthropology as well. Sure. Um, yeah, it's it's an it's an interesting story how I came to anthropology, uh, and anthropologists are great storytellers. So I have story to tell. Um, uh, actually, I my for my undergrad I did sociology, um, but I always interested in in anthropology. Uh, but as you know, in in South Asian countries, you don't have separate anthropology department per se at the time. Uh, so anthropology always taught within sociology. Uh, but but also you learn sociology more or less. Uh, so but I was um, once Gananath, Professor Gananath Obesagra uh, came to Sri Lanka and he was giving a talk and then uh, I was really interested in his work and so on and so forth for a long time and you know Gananath is known for his work on Sri Lanka and, and beyond. Um, so, so after undergrads, I, I was an undergraduate student at that time. I was finishing, and I was going to listen to his talk. And after the talk, I want to meet him, but I could not meet him uh, because everybody he's very famous. Everybody is around him, so I had to wait in the corner to meet him. But I could not uh, meet him for a long time because everybody was surrounded by a lot of people. So, at the end of the meeting, then he sort of took a break and went out. So I ran behind him. Uh, I think he must be going to the bathroom, I suppose. But I ran behind him and sort of caught him at the at the moment before he go to the bathroom and said, I am so-and-so, I am interested in your work. So he laughed and he said, why why you could not come and meet me there? I said, you were surrounded by a lot of people. So then he said, he gave me his card and said, come home. Um, so I he went to his home. Eventually, I developed a great relationship with him, and I tend to do some work for him. And and I think his influence in my life actually led me to do anthropology. At one point, after a year or two years, he said, "You should go and do anthropology." And 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 that's how I arrived to anthropology actually through Gananath. Um, and and then he directed me to people that I should work with and so on and so forth. I ended up in John Hopkins. And uh, so then start working with Vuna and Navida Khan, Professor Navida Khan, uh, where I actually developed the idea of anthropology. I think they shaped, uh, both of them had a huge um, uh, influence in the way in which I think about anthropology. I think about the way in which the anthropology now, uh, and, and it has a lot of influence in my work uh, and my peers from John Hopkins. So basically, I, my anthropology starts, my journey to anthropology starts after my undergrad. Uh, so that's how I came to anthropology. Uh, Fantastic. What a lovely story that is. Uh, uh, I'm sure everybody who's listening uh, 
is equally uh, charmed, impelled, compelled, motivated, inspired by Gandharath Bisekri's writing, one of the finest uh, we have from not just the subcontinent, but I would say just canonically and intellectually everywhere. Uh, so that is a great story indeed. Uh, you know, in that spirit, I also wanted to invite you to tell us about the conceptualization of this book. Uh, you know, it is an unusual study of conflict and political violence because it gets to those uh, stark concerns and questions by the way of what you call the in-betweenness that occurs for those who live with it intimately, even if they are removed from it sort of physically. Um, in a way that you tell us a story up through very, very mobile social fields, as you call it in your own work, so that such that, you know, the choice of how the story is told and from where it is told is not only a matter of uh, multi-sightedness for the sake of it, but is it it's the way in which it unravels. So I wanted you to, um, you know, speak to uh, us about both the the ethics of this kind of mobile social field work and the kinds of personal intellectual impulses that you had in the conceiving of such a methodology, uh, because the book does exactly that so well. So if you could tell us, uh, tell our listeners uh, about how you came about conceptualizing this book as such. How did it come to you to study violence and conflict through a study of transnational marriages? That would be lovely. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, so so this this war, uh, sorry, the book is about uh, uh, transnational marriages in the time of war. So as you know, the, the war has ended in, in 2009, 10 years ago, but my study took place in the time of war. And I also grew up in Sri Lanka in the time of war. So for me, it's always a question, a larger question that uh, I was interested all the time, even when I was in Sri Lanka or when I was doing these studies, is how people live with hope or imagine future or better life in the time of prolonged war. And despite of suffering, fear, despair, and loss, that has become a part of their everyday life. So how do they imagine futures and live that future? Um, and how do they uh, how do they live learn to live with the idea of uncertainty? So that was the biggest thing for me because uh, even in in my own experience of living in the time of war. Uh, in Jaffna, uh, in a war zone, where we constantly used to roam around, we go to schools, we do things, uh, we uh, we uh, went to uh, classes, we uh, we bicycled around the roads while there were violence taking place. Uh, people were killed, people were disappeared, people were uh, jailed, and so on and so forth. So. We don't know whether we will live in the next day, but we continue to do so. So for me, this whole question about how we learn to live with this uncertainty, but still there's a life even within the time of violence. Uh, so that's always a question for me, how to say that, how to talk about that. And the second question is also about the mass migration and constantly people were displaced, uh, not only out, not only to outside Sri Lanka but also within Sri Lanka. People are constantly displaced uh, to different part of the places, uh, and this displacement and mass migration resulted from the war also created all sort of uncertainty uh, in people's life. That means that you don't know whether who will go first, who can bring whom, uh, or the question about if two people get married, how do they travel, how long it will take, when will they start families, and so on and so forth. So these two things, uh, due to war and mass migration, this idea of uncertainty has become an important thing to think about. So I want to tackle this idea of uncertainty, idea of how people learning to live in the time of uncertainty. And uncertainty is not a new thing. It's not only for war. It's every. It's an everyday thing. Even it's, it's there in our everyday life. But in the time of war and mass migration, somehow it has come 
to, to the surface and very vividly. Um, so how to think about that? So for me, uh, one way of thinking through about, uh, about the idea of uncertainty, idea of um, uh, how to live with uncertainty, how people imagine a certain kind of futures, even at the time of chaos and uh, uh, uncertainty, uncertainty moments, it's a way to rethink about the idea of marriage. So for me, even even in the classical understanding of, of the anthropological study of marriage, there's always something to do with future. Uh, even though people talked not in terms of future, but, but in, in 60s and 50s, people talked about kin- anthropology of kinship and marriage in terms of social reproduction. Uh, so the social reproduction is also an idea of a future. Uh, and also people talked about movement within marriage in terms of how people move from patrilocal, so, uh, patrilocal uh, residence to matrilocal residence, right? Uh, how, how people moved within uh, after the marriage, how a bride or a groom moved from one household to the other household. So there's always movement and mobility, ideas of futures attached to the marriage, but they never talked in terms of these languages. Um, so... I thought this is one way to think about. So if we think, if we start to think about marriage and especially transnational marriages through the idea of future and uncertainty, how do we then try to conceptualize not only about marriage, but also to think about the idea of uncertainty through the idea of marriage? So in that process, where uh, I came to uh, to think about marriage as a way of uh, uh, thinking about the the idea of uncertainty, idea about future, the idea about uh, hope, and idea about potential or possibilities. Um, so in that uh, in that process, I also when I start working on on this, I also realize the time that takes. Uh, from arranging a marriage to uh, to the time where the the couples reunite across borders into a new in a new country, because after the marriage take place take place between a person from Canada, Sri Lankan Tamil from Canada, and a Sri Lankan Tamil from Sri Lanka getting married, and the Sri Lankan Tamil from Sri Lanka, a bride or a groom, ending up ending up in in Canada, takes sometimes six months, sometimes. Uh, at that time, right during the war, it takes from six months to two years, and so on and so forth. So, in that whole process, it takes such a long time. So, I want to—I was interested in this process. So, when I started looking at the process, there were so many actors and so many people—not only refugees or migrants, but also people uh, who are non-migrant citizens and different kind of figures and documents and number of things, sort of assembled together in this process over a long time, and is constantly charted changing and moving so when i looked at this process as it as if it as it uh, moves as it goes on and how people sort of navigate live with it and relive with it uh, and and to uh, to make a sense of that whole process over a long period i thought this is an interesting place to think about how the really people learn to live with uncertainty uh, and and how people constantly making and remaking the idea of future and in, and also this process also make and unmake and remake relatednesses because it has the power to to uh, to uh, to create people bring people and family together at the marriage brokers uh, places but at the same time if the visa officer is not going to give a visa then it uh, that that can unmake that relationships for example and then uncertainty will begin and they have to go to the immigration courts to fight over that, which you might remake again if the judge uh, give, uh, give the visa back to the couples. So in this whole process, I looked at the idea of uh, how this process takes place, become a very interesting place to think about, rethink about the, the larger question about uncertainty and ideas of futures, how people live and imagine a future. Uh, in that sense, I want to sort of when I start thinking marriage as a process rather than as an institution or rather than as um, as a structure, but most as a process, uh, it make it made allowed me to think. But this is uh, allowed me to think it in a different way. Uh, in that sense, I also term this in between as um, uh, sorry. I term the marriage process as in between. 
Uh, and the idea of in between emerges for me. It also specifically because a lot of people works on diaspora, a lot of works on many other works. I've I've talked already talked about in between, uh, but also they talked about in between in different forms. Homi Bawa talked about in between in terms of hybridity, uh, which Turner's idea about in between as liminality, uh, and so on and so forth. But for me, uh, I sort of uh, used a Deleuze idea of potential uh, to, to, to bring to the idea of in-between. As a potential is something about, uh, it has the possibility of becoming something, but until it actualized, we don't know what it's going to be. But every time it actualizes, it can, it can actualize differently. Uh, and potential for Deleuze, it's both actualized and yet-to-be-actualized things. So it's both there is a certain kind of possibilities, but also there is unknown factor also attached to the idea of potential. So I thought this whole process, for me, the way people constantly working and reworking and reliving uh, and learning to live uncertainty is kind of in being in this potential moment. And we, they don't know what the outcome is going to be, but if everything is actualized, it they constantly go back and do something else. So the moment it actualized, things become a potential for their life to do something else. So that constant uh, movement between potential and actual uh, allows me to think about marriage process differently. So that's what I termed it in between, but in a in a very sort of a delusion understanding of in in between, uh, and to and to take that and to think about how things get assembled in this in-between. So for me, the, here the in-between works differently. Not It's not only just a space or a figure, but it is uh, it is also documents. It can be a temporary places. It, uh, it can be a space or a zone. Uh, so it can be many things. And this in-between can be between, this, let's say if you take a marriage broker or a wedding photographer, there can be a figure that can, uh, can be can be there in between two families who sort of you know uh, join these two families. They can be in between figures, or they can be uh, they can be an assemblage. The figures, the photographs, or the visa officers' documents, everything like an assemblage, come together in this in between process, the marriage process. Uh, so they can both be an in between and also can be an assemblage of in in the in between process. So it has this flexibility of moving between in between these two or three or multiple ways. Um, so that's how that I thought the in between is more. Um, how do I call it? It's it's the multiplicity of the in betweenness uh, that I use in my work to think about how different uh, uh, figures, uh, documents, places. Uh, court spaces and, and other kind of zones come together and assemble and produce a particular affect and power and, and make and remake relateness. But that moment can change in the next assemblage. Uh, in the next assemblage, different kind of things being produced. So this constantly, every time it assembles, it produces a particular future. But in the other, uh, in 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 the next assemblage, it will produce a different kind of future. But this every moment producing that future create a certain kind of hope, certain kind of possibility of living, certain kind of possibility of thinking about future, in which people rebuild their life. And that moments are important for me. So that moments, even of small, how how temporary it is, that moments in that in that in betweenness make them to relive their life, or, or reimagine their life. That is fantastic. What a what a wonderful way uh, of sort of you know resonating the kinds of hope and. Uh, distraction as well as possibilities and potential that people intimately live within the both the times of war and as your book says in the shadows of war um so thank you so much for uh, sharing that with us you know you you sort of you were speaking about uh, imagining or understanding marriage not merely as an institution but as a process and in the book does such a great job of evoking that again and again and again in a way you start looking at marriage as not an not not even an event but 
the way in which people make that event happen in the first place and the kinds of choices that people are constantly making and uh, thinking about in the contracting of those kinds of relationships. And given that fact that that is so central to how you talk to us about uncertainty, the in-betweenness, the potential of these kinds of choices that people are sometimes compelled to make uh, because of the kind of political violence that is ongoing. I also wanted to invite you to speak about the ways in which you think your own understandings of marriage uh, depart from the ways in which, you know, the quintessential um, literature on kinship and marriage does and in the ways you already begin speaking to it, and particularly in the ways in which you uh, propose in your book, and I'm going to read a little sort of, you know, a little bit from the book on page 73, where you say that the notion of arranged marriage should be rethought in the anthropological literature. The dual notions of love and arranged marriage may lead to the misconception that an arranged marriage is less invested with romance and personal choice than socioeconomic and political strategies. However, boundaries seem blurred between an arranged and a love marriage in the case of transnational arranged unions among Jaffna Tamils. That is such a wonderful proposition to invite people who are thinking about marriage and romance and gender and intimacy and love in all sorts of political and cultural situations. Uh, And I wanted to speak to you about sort of, you know, where do we go with this and how have you been thinking about it in the book, of course, but otherwise as well, uh, uh, how do we as anthropologists also look at uh, look at marriage and sort of this dichotomy, this sort of strange duality between what may be love and arranged uh, marriage. Sure, um, thank you. That's a great question. Um, the 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 first thing about how I started to rethink about marriage, uh, uh, or how do we one can go about thinking about marriage. There's a lot of work has been done. There are great new works have come out, um, but also. Most of the works also still works within the sort of a certain, when it comes to South Asia at least, people think about marriage also in terms of honor, idea of duty, idea of, you know, um, uh, rights, um, and so on, so forth, uh, which is which are very important concept to deal with. But also if you, if you start to, if you want to reassemble different ways to think about, so that's what I, I purposely put together, different kind of people that you don't normally think about in, the, in, in marriage. For example, marriage brokers are always at the margins of any marriage studies, for example, or kinship studies, uh, or wedding photographs. People have worked on, few people have worked on wedding photographs, lovely works have come out, but also that is not a central to the idea of of marriage because if you think about how wedding photographs capturing certain rituals and event or people think about um, different kind of documents produced in the marriage broker's offices uh, and what kind of detailed information that carries uh, or questions about how people so even have wedding packages for example what that wedding packages tells about marriage and relationships and how certain idea of romance and and love are produced through these wedding packages in the wedding photographs uh, and, and sometimes uh, these photographs are produced for to, to proof in in my case in the transnational marriages in the proof to the visa office that the wedding is it's a real wedding. It's not a wedding, marriage of convenience. The marriage, there's genuine marriage. So sometimes, because the visa office is looking at the photographs and rec- uh, scrutinizing the photograph and saying that, oh, there is not enough intimacy between the couple. So suddenly, the love and the romance are produced for somebody's gaze, right? Uh, so there is an idea about. So I'm putting together a different way to think about marriage rather than in a very classical way in which we think about marriage. So that tells us already tells us something different about marriage. In that sense, in that spirit, when you asked about the question about arranged and love marriage, I think this is a debate that we have been having a long time and I've been teaching a course on marriage, sex, love uh, in South Asia uh, for my class, 2000 level class here. And every time when I teach the, this course, the students, when I ask about 
tell me about uh, uh, South Asian marriages, they'll immediately say it's an arranged marriage, right? Um, they completely immediately. So there is a sort of a, this stereotypical idea about uh, South Asia is always full of arranged marriage. But my even if you think the cross cousin marriage is the big thing, the uh, big thing in South Asia, and the kin, the the lot of works and kinship studies have been dealt with this idea of cross cousin marriage. But even if you think about cross cousin marriage, um, if if you from the childhood you know that this person you are going to marry this person when you when you grow up. Right, because this is your cross cousin, and there is a possibility that you are going to get married, and that also means that the person going to develop a certain kind of romance and love towards the person, and intimacy towards that person. So even that is seems to be like an arranged uh, from the childhood that this is the cross cousin marriage. Uh, this is what's going to happen in the future, or even there's a possibility of this cross-cousin uh, marriage will take place among the society. There is an idea of uh, that you're going to marry this person in the future makes them to f- create a certain kind of intimacy. So this idea of arrangement and the love is already disturbed even within the cross-cousin marriage system for me. Uh, so that's one way to think about it. And the second one, <coughs> in from my work, when I, I started the way in which these um, marriages are arranged in my book, when I was started looking at the idea of arranged marriages, of course, these marriages are arranged through marriage brokers or relatives or friends. But in this in this context, uh, once they, they 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 compare the charts, they compare the, um, the 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 other factors, and then they say the two families sort of uh, like to uh, like the idea of their daughter or son getting married to the other person. Uh, once that come to that level, they will exchange the phone numbers, right? So they will give the phone number of the bride to the groom or possible groom, or they will give the uh, possible groom's number to the possible bride. Um, and that will allow uh, them to talk to each other over the phone, over Skype, and that might even take, what, two months, three months, so on and so forth. And interestingly, many of these people who talk to me, or even the brokers who talk to me, who told me that how they develop a certain kind of intimacy uh, within that three months period, right? So even though it is ar- arranged, the way in which that whole process takes place, there is an idea of romance and love also inbuilt into that. Um, uh, so there is an interesting way to think about this. There's no then at the end of at the, at the, at the start of the real marriage or at, at the start of the rituals and and the ceremonies, you don't know whether this is actually real arranged or a love marriage, because it already blurred the line between the arranged and the love marriages. Uh, by the time they come to marriage, right? And the way in the wedding photographs are produced, for example, they produce with so much intimacy. And also, it's not only it is catered to a particular um, visa officers to make sure that uh, they, this is a genuine marriage, but it's also it, it, there's a lot of influence from Bollywood and there's a lot of influence from uh, Tollywood and and. Tamil Nadu muse, uh, cinema and so on and so forth. So there is a certain kind of romantic element that is built into these wedding photographs and uh, videos and so on and so forth. So the whole point I was trying to say is to one maybe have to break away from this very strict binary on which that we work for a long time, idea of love and arranged marriage in the South Asian context, but to rethink about how certain kind of intimacy are possible even within the so-called arranged marriages. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. That is uh, extremely well put. And in a way, I think it's very generative to start thinking about the possibilities of romance and love uh, without sort of having to decide whether it is arranged or not. Uh, you know, you did speak of how the lines between arranged marriage and love marriage is sort of, you know, a counterproductive exercise in some sense. And, in a way, I wanted to also ask you to speak to you about the kinds of similarities if we were to, for this, you know, let's say if we, if we did stick to the misplaced stereotype of love marriage and arranged marriage, uh, the kinds of reproduction of uh, 
caste identities that you are trying to also tell our readers, uh, the readers of your book, uh, in a way, transnational marriages uh, do not really disturb that too much either. In a way that arranged marriages, the whole idea of sort of this endogamous practice of arranged marriages in some senses also to conserve and reproduce those kinds of caste status and identities. So in that spirit, can you speak um, to our listeners about what does caste identity and status mean for both arranged and love marriages if you would stick if you stick to those stereotypes for a moment? Sure. Um, yeah. Uh- Caste identities, yeah. Uh, the so <coughs> it is true. Transnational marriages uh, is not necessarily have broken down the the caste identities or, uh, or 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 sort of people moved away from endogamy marriages and so on and so forth. It's in a way it still reinforces. Um, uh, caste identities, but um, I think there is a slight difference between Sri Lanka and India. In if you take uh, the caste identity, because caste um, identities uh, or caste uh, claims are not publicly made in Sri Lanka. Uh, it is unspoken. It is it, people people actually um, practice it, of course, uh, in a greater sense, but they. Um, they don't speak them in public and they don't claim it in public uh, because it has various reasons. We don't have a quota system, for example, for caste like India to for 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 to, to get jobs or to be in parliament and so on and so forth. Uh, so in a way, it's not publicly acknowledged, uh, the caste thing, but it's very much operates. So there's a secrecy also. So people always trying to identify you, not asking who are you or which caste you are from, but they will ask you, where are you from? Uh, so you will say Jaffna. Then if you say Jaffna, they will then try to figure out um, which part of Jaffna. Then it will come to the particular Ur, which is a particular village. And then in the village, they will try to figure out which section of the village you are in. And from that, they will pick and then say, oh, you are from, they will re- they'll know. So it's always a conversation always take place, even in a marriage um, negotiation that I was witnessing in the marriage brokers offices. It's always a conversation about where are you from, who are you, where do you live and where's your bride's family lives or the groom's family lives and which part of the route in the particular village they live and so on and so forth. And that conversation is all about trying to identify the caste. Um, so even in this dispersed Moment and then people uh, scattered and and fragmented with the war and gone to many places. If you look at the marriage broker's office and the files they created, have detailed information about who married whom, not only with the bride and the groom, but the groom's brothers and sisters and who they are married to and where they are living now and where their parents. So it sort of you can trace them through that. But always, if you look at the, there's a cast column in the file. In that column, there is, is completely empty. So you don't, you don't, you will not know whether the person is from which caste by just reading that. But if you're reading the other people's information, you can trace them. So you have to trace them. And that's the way in which in Sri Lanka, especially in Jaffna, especially in the Jaffna Tamils, the, the caste operates. It's a very public secret. Uh, and also people people use it uh, people use it in many ways and and reinforce it but they were never spoken uh, openly uh, so in that sense, here again in the transnational marriages, it's, it's reproduced and also I have told uh, in my in my work that is my uh, in the introduction that I it, it, it's uh, my work is also about a particular caste group mostly uh, and it is always the so-called upper caste people and the, it's always a middle class or the the upper middle class people that I uh, have worked with because I enter through marriage brokers and the marriage brokers always operate with mostly operate with upper caste uh, um group but also they also they have uh, uh, files or brides and grooms files of other caste as well so that there is also but th- th- these are the majority uh, clients they have uh, so 
that is one uh, one thing so in that sense still the the in in that sense it very much operates the caste operates uh, within the marriage brokers office and the marriage brokers in a way recreate this sort of caste thing but for me the quite interesting ways in which they can't operate is because by recreating it it's on the one one hand one can argue that it reinforces the caste identity uh, through this sort of creating these files and and details about peoples and who married but on the other hand it also creates a certain kind of familiarity for people who are dispersed uh, for people who have gone and and uh, imagine that everything is is been completely uh, scattered uh, and everything become unknown for them this is suddenly the caste identity becoming something known thing for them so suddenly for them that familiarity creates the possibility of a certain kind of future right so i'm not saying that caste is reinforces is a good thing but i'm saying that i'm trying to think about how that familiarity been suddenly been produced but on the on the on reproducing of the familiarity also reproduce the caste identity mm no that i that that's amazing um you know i had this question in mind when i was reading the book in a way that you have already sort of begun to address it in response to my previous question and without sort of making any essentialist claim uh i was trying to read the book in a larger context of not just political violence and uncertainty but also if one were to do that exercise to place it in a larger understanding of personhood um uh, and the way that you were speaking about you know recreating relationships relatedness kinship and the idea of a family even though everybody is sort of uh living outside the so called family and creating new sort of locations and relationships uh, constantly which then goes 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 a long way to inform what does it mean to be uh, a jafna tamil of a certain caste and class location so i wanted to actually um you know request you to offer a few comments on is there a way in which it is possible to understand uh marriage and personhood together and i say this with some amount of uh, sort of suspicion because increasingly <laughs> increasingly you know the valence of marriage as an institution if not a process is something that you know all of us are questioning uh so what is what is then a res- the resonance of marriage and marriage rituals determined by the kind of sort of transnational alliances crucial to a certain kind of being a jafna tamil in this case but broadly in being a certain kind of person i i'm really i'm compelled to ask this question because of the way in which you uh very beautifully give us an ethnography of you know making someone trustworthy the the whole process of inquiry which is i suppose if i'm pronouncing this correctly visarita um uh, so this the whole idea of visarita right making these inquiries making the by by the process of contracting this marriage to various people and institutions and events you make people real and trustworthy um Uh, so if you could you know in that sense speak to what is this uh uh relationship between sort of marriage personhood and belonging uh in the context which you gave us but if that is a possibility beyond uh beyond your text as well sure that's a very interesting question um very very interesting question uh, um the yeah so the the idea of personhood and marriage uh, i think there's a big field but in 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 let me take it through my some of the examples that i have from the book so the one one idea about personhood also comes from as you said rituals just to holding on to certain kind of rituals um and also one of the ways in which uh i i think about rituals actually not in jaffna or not in canada but in in india for example because both the brides and the grooms 
come to India to get married because at that time, most of the people who have gone as refugees to Canada, Sri Lankan Tamils have gone to refugees in Canada, they cannot return back because they didn't have proper documents or they didn't become citizens to come back. And also war was taking place at that time, so they didn't want to come. So they will come closer to a place uh, to Sri Lanka, which is always the Tamil Nadu. India become the place for them to come and the bride or the groom from Sri Lanka will travel. Uh, so they will all come in, in India, in Tamil Nadu, and then they'll get married. And and interestingly, uh, this is like a 14 days event because they'll get about two weeks leave to come to do these things from Canada um, uh, because of the job and work and so on and so forth. And the bride's family and, and also families and relatives from all over the world will also come there. So suddenly in these 14 days, uh, every different people from different part of the world come from, uh, from who are relative or friends of brides and groom come to this place and they will also buy a uh, package, wedding packages is mostly offered by the Sri Lankan refugees who are actually living in Tamil Nadu. There's a larger Sri Lankan refugees in Tamil Nadu uh, who also have this, uh, who also arrange these wedding packages. And these wedding packages have a Sri Lankan priest, Sri Lankan photographer, Sri Lankan food, uh, and so on and so forth, and a guest house to stay. So the people will come, stay in the guest house. So it's kind of a Sri Lankan sort of Sri Lankan village atmosphere is recreated through the idea of, of this ritual. So there's kind of authenticity, right? Uh, idea of the Sri Lankan personhood, Sri Lankan sort of village, uh, kinship, and the marriage has been created. Uh, and then, the, the, so I was tracing this idea of wedding packages, and, and, and they, they, they want a specific ways in which the rituals has been done. And, and so... And the Sri Lankan priest, that was my interesting point, that looking at why Sri Lankan priest. There are a lot of Indian priests in, from Tamil Nadu who have the same mandra, same same uh, rituals, right? But why they want Sri Lankan priest? And in number, even I've showed in the book that in one case that uh, the, the father of the bride was not very happy the way in which, because there was an Indian priest at that time, the Sri Lankan priest was not could not come. So they got an Indian priest and they were not very happy the way in which they were doing uh, thing and and the father could not explain to me exactly what was wrong, but he was saying this is not the way we do it. This is not the way we do it. Um, and when I talked to the Indian priest at the time, the priest says, "No, I have done so many wedding rituals and everything. Why they are questioning my authority?" And the wedding photographer was a Sri Lankan specialist, um, also Sri Lanka was a Sri Lankan uh, refugee at that time, and who was a wedding photographer who was also questioning Dyer and saying that uh, the the priest and saying that he is not doing it properly, uh, is doing wrong, and so on and so forth. So I was really puzzled by suddenly by what is the big difference, but nobody could, could not give an answer. Even I talked to the Indian priest. He could not. He said, "This is what I do it." And then next time when I met a Sri Lankan priest who was doing the same. Um, rituals, I was asking what's the difference between the Indian uh, priest who do, conducting the marriage ritual and the Sri Lankan priest. And he was trying to give a few examples. Then at the end of the example, he gave me, he said that you should read this book. I follow this book, which is published by the Hindu ministry in Sri Lanka and written by uh, this priest and so on and so forth. So I thought maybe I should trace back to this book and I traced the priest and I did. And I went and met the priest and, and asked him, can you tell me the differences? And you know what? He went to his, within, in his room and, and brought his own book and started reading from his own book. Uh, so in a funny way that he even is not, he, so I asked him, you know everything by heart. Why are you reading from your book? And he said that, uh, no, I want to be make sure that is correct. I mean, I'm selling exactly the way. So the the idea, the the idea that I was trying to trace the idea of the authenticity, authentic Tamil Sri Lankan marriages or Jaffna Tamil marriages, at that point came to me. I mean, struck me that there's no there's nothing called authenticity. Is this the imagination that in when the people come together as a wedding photographer the community, the bride, the groom, the family, everybody come together. It is in that moment of imagination what is the Sri Lankan Japanese Tamils come, sort of uh, allows them to sort of uh, gives a certain idea of the familiarity uh, for them to think about togetherness whereas something new comes into that uh, that imagination, something like an Indian ayer, disturb that kind of familiarity. So the authenticity is based on this imagination, a collective imagination 
of a familiar familiar's uh, rituals and ideas rather than it is what is exactly the authenticity of that ritual is so in that sense the idea of the jaffna tamil personhood for example it not relies on the idea of this is what this is the authentic idea of this personality but this idea of of it's very fragmented about different fragmented fragments come together to create a certain kind of familiarity and imagine together a personhood or an idea of uh, of identity um which is not necessarily something uh something something that actually point to a direction of uh, uh uh authentic identity but it is very fragile and very fragmented and it's very multiple and it's constantly changing but it's at that moment of collective uh, togetherness and the collective imagination and collective uh, uh, coming together moment of thinking is the way in which one can say uh, in which that that authenticity sort of emerges but also it can disappear at the next moment um and same thing happens in 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 canada if you look at the canadian uh the weddings that take place in toronto for example among the sri lankan tamils it's also you will see a different kind of rituals take place but sometimes people even don't know why they are doing it uh but it's an idea of you know uh, they are thinking that is the right way of doing it and the right way is always very fragmented i guess so in a way the answer the short answer to the idea of the marriage and the personhood is to think about even the idea of the personhood not as one one thing or a unit but to think it as a sort of multiple fragments mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely absolutely you couldn't have said it better uh, um you know i'll come to my favorite chapter of the book which is the book uh, is the chapter on the wedding albums and the production and the photographers it is such a stunning and unusual uh thing to come across in uh, in anthropological texts where uh the visual language is not just a stamp to prove what the text is saying but in a way that the visual resonance of these kinds of things becomes a part of the argument that it is the argument in effect in this particular chapter about the production of the modern wedding album and i had i have like i have a couple of questions about that in that sense one is um what are the kinds of i see you have an interest in 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 cinema more broadly and perhaps in in tamil cinema in in tollywood and in bollywood more particularly uh so what are the kinds of like influences uh other than obviously seeing uh the fact that wedding photographers among various other agents have become such crucial actors in witnessing the marriage and helping others witness the marriage including paralegals and the immigration officers and the court officials and all of that sort of people help you know witness the marriage even then even when they were not really part of the marriage so what are the kinds of sort of you know broader aesthetic influences that that made you sort of that helped you identify this in the first place because this is something that we all can perhaps observe but can also pass through our eyes as not being majorly uh, crucial to how lossy is marriage so that is one sort of question i had about the chapter and the other question that i had was you know you this is the the book as a whole and one of those chapters in particular does a fantastic job of telling us once again the various ways in which uh, law can influence everyday social ordinary life and particularly something as as uh, ordinary as marriage in this case actually quite extraordinary um and i wanted to you to speak to us about uh the kinds of choices that you had to make in tracking uh the kinds of court cases and the material and visual evidence of what you call the intention to marry and how it had to be reproduced in in these various occasions and how various actors come together to help that happen so uh, just to summarize the two questions i have are one about the 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 the, the ways in which you were able to identify the aesthetics of the modern wedding album as crucial 
to uh, a certain witnessing of the marriage as well as the kinds of choices that you had to make in tracking these particular cases through uh, you know fri- right from the happening of the marriage right to uh, Canadian immigration tribunals and courts okay thank you um wedding photos true that we always overlook a lot of photos when we do our research and i did too um i didn't i was not going with this idea of looking at the wedding photos at all um i was actually uh it, it sort of emerged from the field the wedding photographs especially because when i was looking at the transnational marriages a lot of people were talking at that time how they have to produce these photographs to the immigration officers especially to canadian immigration officers to prove as a one of the proofs on top of other documents they have to produce uh, they have to produce these photographs to show that these rituals have taken place uh, how many people have come to the wedding and how many people have witnessed the wedding and and how the how it has taken place and so on and so forth so that is one point which i thought about okay maybe the wedding photographs and i started collecting photo wedding photographs and i was observing in the in the in the wedding rituals when i was involved in the wedding ceremonies um the, the the role of the wedding photographer who actually suddenly have more authority than the priest because he could stop the the, the rituals and say i want to take a picture so the, the the priest also will sort of work towards that and sometimes repeat the rituals in a way that if it's not been captured first time so that fascinates me the the, the, the suddenly the authority of the photograph that emerge in this ritual over the priest um so that's one and 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 how how these photographs become very crucial for people to reunite across the uh, borders so these are two things i sort of first i drew me into this and i thought how do i think about it but the more i work, start working with the photograph the the other interesting things start to emerge it's not only about the aesthetic the way in which it actually created so it's not just only for the photo, uh, wedding photographer but it's also create other forms of community through wedding photograph because this wedding album is the only thing because imagine these communities are dispersed right so the the different families are living in different places you know the the typical tamil diaspora if you think about it, it it's like a have multiple homes the parents might be living in sri lanka the siblings might be living in different part of the world in australia canada and the bride and groom living in canada for example so but the wedding photographs and the wedding videos also which i didn't talk about in my book but i also collected wedding videos they are the one which circulates among these multiple homes uh, when they move among the multiple home they also people come and watch together and they talk about it they see people uh, again this is because this is a moment in which everybody come together from di- a different part of the world so this is this produce a certain kind of um uh, uh, moment for people to see each other but also been recorded and and witnessed that moment and also that moment is circulating among different homes and where people come together and watch and then comment and they talk about the wedding talk about everything so it cre- recreate this kind of uh, uh, idea of community idea of togetherness and so on and so forth uh, and but also it has a lot of influence with the tamil cinema so the way in which the certain photographs are have been done the aesthetic comes from a very bollywood uh, tollywood cinema background but also very sophisticated um, Uh, wedding uh, albums uh, and so on so forth but interesting what else also it 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 happens in the process people also cut and paste of people who could not come or who could who have died during the war uh, into these uh, pictures and interestingly in a in a, in a normal uh, process always the dead are kept aside during the time of marriage right it's not auspicious to to evoke the deaths um but the data are sort of kept aside um but in this the data have been brought in and in by through the wedding photographs in that sense their the relationships are rebuilt between the living and the dead uh and 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 the 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 photographs allow that them to do that and the ideal family is created and when i ask them why you want to bring people who have died into the photograph and cut and paste them into the photograph and a lot of people said that uh, they would have believed if if the war wasn't there so the, the war 
destroyed and they are rebuilding it in the photos. So the photo suddenly becomes something else also. And also when the one day when after the wedding in India, the father was the father and the mother was leaving because the their children who came for the wedding um, got married and left back to Canada and the their daughter-in-law has gone back to Sri Lanka and they were leaving. So I was helping them packing the bags. The father was taking the photo album that was produced for the thing and said that this is the only thing that I have now. And he's taking and walking with him. And that shows that, you know, photo, photo is photographs are doing more than what it's supposed to do. It is also becoming a living thing for the father. His memories, his, his son's uh, future, his son's life and, and daughters-in-law life and his other relatives come together whom he might not even see after this. Um, now all in captured in this wedding and that he, that is the only thing that is is in his hand that is carrying uh, and and going to live with right so in that sense for me the photograph suddenly become many it has it has many meanings one is sort of aesthetic meaning other one is the meaning of uh, producing as a witness bringing a, becoming a witness and becoming a, a living thing for the visa officers to scrutinize but on the other hand for the community it also is able to rebuild life between the dead and the living and it create an ideal family even or for a father who might not even see the son this become the thing that to live with him forever yeah so that is the one, the first one question I think that's about what you're talking about the, uh, the the photographs. And the second question that you used to talk about intentionality of marriage and how the immigration officers. So once the whole process has started, because when the visa officers refuses the visa, spousal visa, on the basis of that it's not a genuine marriage. You can take that, you can challenge that by taking it to the immigration courts in Canada. Uh, and and then the, the immigration courts sort of look at it, look at the whole evidence and re, rework everything and to see whether this is a genuine marriage or not. And in, quite interestingly, most of the cases were, re were rejected by the visa officers actually be granted visas. In the, during the court sessions. Um, so it's quite interesting how things happen. Uh, but I was interested, but how do they measure uh, this, this is a genuine marriage or not? So the idea of measuring a genuine marriage is, is something based on the idea of intentionality of the couples. So what is the intention behind this marriage? Uh, whether they want to stay together, they, there is an intention of creating a family, stay together, or is the intention is to come into Canada? That was the whole thing. But the, how do you legally measure something called inten, intention of these two couples, the intentionality of the couples, uh, which is very interior thing, right? When you think about intentionality, something interior. So how something something is in an interior can be measured legally. So for me, then the interior has to be performed through some sort of exterior things, right? So it has to perform outside the person uh, through which the, 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 the people can measure the real intentionality. And the measuring is happens through about uh, through ways in which uh, how do they know about each other's, what kind of information they, uh, they have about each other's and uh, whether they are sending money to each other, uh, are they having, uh, are they writing letters, are they uh, keep on touch, are they talking to each other? So what is the real intention? So this, this intentionality is being measured through different kind of performance that takes place between the couples. And that intentionality creators kind of, this is the real intention for, for them to come to Canada is to start the family. And interestingly, for me, the intentionality measured through many forms. They not only through you're not only produced through only through civil uh, marriage act uh, document that they have to produce, but also about the they have to produce all kind of things about WhatsApp messages, uh, Skype messages, or other kind of documents. Uh, and the, if they have transferred money from one account to other account, how long they have been doing that, and so on and so forth. So this kind of a commitment to each other's and each other's life. Um, 
But when I so this this is sort of legally measured the idea of intentionality. And when I was tracing that, and I've quite interestingly found that this idea of intentionality is something not as new to the immigration process, but also took place in the colonial times. Uh, during that, I sort of I went back to the Sri Lankan. Uh, marriages in Sri Lanka and during the colonial time when the British introduced the Civil Marriage Act and trying to uh, make everybody to, to, to adhere to the Civil Marriage Act a lot of people didn't compel so the Civil Marriage Act was not in full force. So at that time, uh, and especially the re- re- registration was not in full force. Um, so the colonial authorities also accepted the customary marriage practices. But the question, when the customary marriage uh, come to a question, there's a dispute over customary marriage, then there were a lot of court cases that talked about how the colonial officers and judges actually worked with the idea of customary marriages. And when I traces that uh, that court cases, I found out that there were a lot of discussion about whether this is a proper marriage or not, this is a proper customary marriage or not. In that, they were trying to figure out whether this has happened according to this particular caste customary custom or not. So this customary marriages have been also redefined in this court court uh, spaces by the colonial authorities, but also interestingly, this um, uh, the uh, the idea of intentionality also been evoked in that marriages, and the intentionality of a person also emerged through idea of the what kind of rituals they have performed and how these rituals are performed according to different castes. So even this has been broken down into different castes, but the intentionality is worked out idea of what exact rituals has performed. Whether this ritual is performed, therefore there is an intention, real intention. If there's no ritual performed, there is a lack of intention. Because the the, the idea behind the judge is that the ritual is uh, essential for people for the future life. So if they're not doing performing the ritual, they're not very much keen about the future. So there is an interestingly the idea, even though I sort of compare uh, two different court spaces, the immigration court space and the colonial court spaces, for me, the way in which they both connected through the idea of intentionality, how the legal languages come to measure something called intentionality, both in the colonial and the post-colonial times. And it continued to uh, redefine marriages and redefine relatedness or make or unmake relatedness through the legal languages of intentionality or by measuring the idea of intentionality. That is uh, that is so useful. Uh, your response is so useful to uh, someone like me who has read the book, but to put in perspective the kinds of afterlives that law can have right from being a colonial sort of exercise to the contemporary global regime of immigration. Uh, so thank you for, you know, uh, restating that. Uh, thank you so much, Siddhartha. This has been such an enjoyable conversation. I have really, really uh, learned so much in the way of the reading the book, but also talking to you today. And I know we have taken up a lot of your time. But before I let you go, I really also want you to tell us what you're doing next. And what can we hope to see from you next in the form of an essay, a book? Uh, what's the next thing that's keeping you occupied? Okay. Um, well, some uh, one project I think I am almost over, but I, the, the the publications are coming that I can talk about. Is I quite after this I got got interested in religion and politics. So it's a big shift from from marriage to religion and politics. But but. Again, it's also uh, along with the idea of diaspora. So I'm still interested in the idea of diaspora and how things work. Uh, and I always worked between Sri Lanka and the Tamil diaspora. So it's a comparative study. Uh, so this is also to think about religion and Hindu politics, uh, Hindu temples in in in, uh, in in the diaspora and in Sri Lanka. Uh, this actually emerged from a, a, a very, I think it's a very interesting puzzle. Uh, puzzle is that uh, in Sri Lanka, the Hindu temples uh, able to withstand, even in the height of the conflict and the war, uh, the Hindu temple able to withstand Tamil nationalistic politics uh, it, and had its own life without mingling with the Tamil nationalist politics. But while in the 
in the Tamil diaspora, the Hindu temples, uh, somehow mingling with the Tamil nationalist politics, and also become a certain kind of certain temples have become so. Or, uh, at least in the, during the time of war, has become a place of sort of a pro-Tamil nationalist places. So my question is, how one uh, the, the religious space in one place able to withstand politics has become a part of a politics in the other space? So that's a larger question. Uh, and I try to answer this by looking at, I was got quite interested in the idea of deities. Um, and how looking at the deities in the temples and to think about the idea of sovereign deities and the, uh, the how the sovereign deities in these temples able to withstand or with, cannot able to withstand the, the Tamil national politics. So I trying to, so in a larger sense, I was trying to work the idea with rather than thinking about politics versus religion, I was trying to work through the idea of sovereignty, uh, which is sort of a cut across this idea of politics and religion through sort of a, interesting idea of political theology. Um, so in a way, to th- can we rethink about uh, sovereignty, idea of or notions of sovereignty through a very polytheistic religious perspective um, or, or multiple ideas of powers rather than the centralized idea of or judo-Christian idea of sovereignty, uh, which is centered around a very monotheistic religious concept and everything. Uh, so that was my preoccupation for the last three, four years, I suppose. And I'm trying to work on, and I think there's a, a, the article coming out in Current Anthropology soon uh, on, on that. Uh, so that's sort of, that's the one. And the last is uh, that I'm, I'm thinking in the future. Uh, it's about actually to think about anthropology of futures. Uh, this is also a comparative research studies which I'm quite interested to think about whether how anthropologists can really think about. There are a few studies that have come out, of course, recently, but I'm also interested to think about how anthropologists can answer to this sort of what I call it a future turn, right? It's all about this idea about the futures, about big data, digital uh, environment, Anthropocene. Everything is all about the idea of the futures. So how anthropologists can do this sort of answer to and how anthropologists can really concretely study something called future or futures. And that need a bigger, I think, team and people who work on environment and anthropology who work on urban studies, who work on borders, who work on STS and so on and so forth, right? Uh, so you need a team of people to think about collectively how to think about anthropology of futures. So that would be something that I'm quite interested in and want to develop further at some point of my life, I guess. Wow. They both sound like such great project, and I am for one looking to the future, for the futures of this project's project. So I want to thank you once again, Siddhartan, so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. And I hope our listeners will as well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mimika. It was, uh, it was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I really thank the New Books Network as well for giving me this opportunity to share some of my thoughts and also about my book. Thank you so much. All right, then, Siddhartan. Bye. Bye.